Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior Journal Club webinar. My name is Mark Lewis. I am the membership director for SNAB. As the official peer-reviewed journal of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, JNEB serves advances nutrition, education, and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. The Spring Journal Club series was organized with the assistance of the SNAB Research Division, so give a big thank you to all of them. Before we begin, I'd like to review a few pieces of information for you. If you look in the GoToWebinar toolbar on the side of your screen, you will see a section called Handouts. Here you will find slides for today's presentation. Feel free to download the slides and take notes as you follow along. We will take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, throughout the presentation, please type any questions you may have into the questions box, and they will be moderated to our panelists. When the webinar ends today, you'll be prompted to take a short survey. Please take a moment to complete this as your feedback is greatly appreciated and needed for future SNAB webinars. This webinar is also being recorded and will be available free of charge to any SNAB member under the webinar section of our website. And finally, watch for a follow-up email to be sent within the next few days, which will include a link to the recording for this session, the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. I will now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DeFilippo, Teaching Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen, it's all yours. Thank you. Today, I get to introduce our presenter. Ray Shimizu is an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Anchorage School of Social Work. Her experience as a social worker in health settings informs her research on social determinants of health behavior change, specifically related to dietary quality. She brings unique social work perspectives by applying a social justice lens and psychosocial framework to understand dietary disparities among young adults through interventions, community programming and participation, and food policy. Her overall research goal is to examine models of food behavior change that consider the effects of psychosocial constructs such as poverty, mental health, violence, and interpersonal relationships. I want to thank Dr. Shimizu for joining us today, and at this point, I can pass it over to her. Thank you so much for having me today, and thank you for that kind introduction. Um, it's just such an honor to be able to present here today. Um, so I'll be presenting on the systematic, the research methods of the systematic review of psychosocial nutrition interventions for young adults. Um, I'm the lead author, Reishmizu, but I'm also presenting on behalf of Aaron Rodwin and Michelle Munson from New York University Silver School of Social Work. So currently I'm an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Anchorage School of Social Work, but um, when this study was done, I was a doc student at NYU. All right. So um, for the nutrition educator competencies that will be covered today, um, 7.2, describe the major psychosocial theories of behavior and behavior change, um, and also inter intervention contents that are um, guided by the psychosocial theories of behavior, assess the nutritional and behavioral needs of the population, um, particularly in regards to young adults, and to analyze, evaluate, and interpret nutrition education research and apply it to practice, um, in particular to um, systematic reviews. Before I start, I want to acknowledge the land of the indigenous nations and peoples who have come before us. Um, I live and work on Anchorage, Alaska's land, Nina land, 
I acknowledge the history of displacement related to the land we occupy and the displacement that continues in various forms today. I pledge my commitment to humility and to engage in decolonizing anti-oppressive pedagogy, scholarship, and practices of social worker. Um, we are getting close to summer. Our mountains are still covered in snow, but here's a beautiful picture of Anchorage, Alaska. Our outline today covers these topics. I will be focusing on the research methods. Um, and at the end, I hope to be able to engage in some dialogue with you all. Um, yeah, I'll definitely be just going through the research methods and decision making that informs the introduction, conceptualization, research design data collection, the results, um, and then a discussion of strengths and limitations and lessons learned. And to start with the introduction, I really cannot speak about our research methods and the decision making process without really telling you about who we are a bit about us as social work researchers and our positionality in the field of nutrition education and nutrition education research. Um, so perhaps many of you have seen the article, the JNM article I'm talking about today, um, and many of you have figured out from the credentials on our manuscript, all of us are social work researchers and educators, um, but we are also have clinical experience working in various settings, including mental health, um, hospitals, multi-service, community health clinics, and nonprofits. Um, something we all have in common, the authorship amongst our various experiences, our interest in young adulthood and the young adult population. And as many of us are social workers who provide interventions clinically, as researchers, we also have a passion for behavioral change overall, um, but specifically behavioral change mechanisms. And as service providers, for many of us, intervention research is our forte. Um, furthermore, one of our core missions in our profession is to serve vulnerable, underserved, and marginalized populations. And in that context, we also often see inequities in dietary quality and food behaviors, specifically fruits and vegetable consumption. So my research focus is on examining social determinants of health, as explained in my bio, and health disparities specifically related to dietary quality and food behavior decision making. And I particularly focus on food behaviors among young adults in the context of poverty, mental health, and interpersonal dynamics based on various food narratives that I engaged in and that I kind of encountered as a social work clinician, which I'll also talk about. And as I was developing my focus and research trajectory as a doc student, I went to my mentor, Michelle Munson, and we acknowledge that you know, we're not registered dietitians or nutritionists. And we also recognize that we were occupying this really kind of anxious space for a researcher, investigator of not knowing what we don't know. So we really had to delve into the literature to see you know, where does social work fit into this? Um, what do we not know? What is there? What are the gaps in the research currently? So my mentor asked me you know, as a social worker, why is this important to you? Why specifically are the food behaviors um, among young adults important to you? So I told her really it's informed by my clinical experience and what I was seeing in the clinical arena. Um, my clinical experience is providing trauma-focused therapy for those impacted by domestic violence and intimate partner violence and providing general psychotherapy in mental health settings. So, for example, I was seeing interpersonal conflicts related to food come up in K-12 
counseling in the context of domestic violence and food narratives emerging in mental health settings as components of health management, as well as just self-care in general. Um, and working in some of these communities and helping individuals navigate and really escape poverty, I also saw accessibility issues related to healthy foods. Um, and all of these narratives were particularly salient among the young adults um, within these developmental narratives of needing to provide for oneself, really learning to be independent. And in the field of domestic violence and intimate partner violence, it was really learning how to be in intimate relationships, learning how to communicate food preferences with partners um, and communication in general. So I just kept seeing these food narratives come up. So in talking about the significance of the problem um, today, I just want to kind of emphasize the social work lens, um, which is to be social justice oriented, systems conscious, developmentally grounded and behaviorally motivated. And I know that these concepts we also share with many professions that examine food behaviors and nutrition interventions. So what is young adulthood exactly? Um, young adulthood is a developmental phase that's marked by expectations of meeting these adult milestones, such as marriage, financial independence, gaining housing security, living on one's own, and for some, post-secondary education or career development in general. In the U.S., this occurs at around 18 to 34, um, although before it was said to occur between 18 to 25. So in 2017, the U.S. Census Bureau's um, researcher Vespa came out with an article that really looked at when these adult milestones were being reached and recognized that marriage, financial independence, housing independence, and post-secondary education is occurring later and later because of inflation and some of the political things that are happening, financial difficulties. It's just becoming harder and harder for young adults to reach these adult milestones. So now, um, and in particularly in our study, young adulthood is defined as age 18 to 34. So why is young adulthood so important? Um, young adulthood is a critically developmental phase for health behaviors, including diet, because young adults explore new behaviors or sustain old habits in the process of learning to become independent. Um, and young adult health behaviors with cumulative, cumulative effects like diet significantly affect health across the lifespan, especially if the dietary behaviors they adopt or habituate are unhealthy. Um, and health behaviors implemented at this time tend to be sustained into later adulthood. Um, and it's also a population that the food industry spends most of their money and time on marketing. Um, market research tends to show that brand loyalty is also established at this time. So I really love this graphic by the State of Hawaii Department of Health um, because it beautifully highlights how young adulthood is an opportune developmental phase for health behavior change, intervention um, towards sustained change over the lifespan. So we really wanna support positive health behaviors at this time to make sure that it continues into later adulthood and intervene and mitigate any negative habituations that may be happening. We also know when we look at dietary quality, specifically when we operationalize young adults as 18 to 34 year olds, that there are disparities in dietary quality by age. Um, when age is categorized in this way, we see that young adults actually consume the lowest quality diets out of all age groups. 
um, diets are particularly high in processed foods and low in fruits and vegetables. And young adults also are known to rely on fast food and already prepared foods. So thinking about the developmental nuances of young adulthood, its relationship to food behaviors, and the current state of diet among young adults, as I've mentioned, we really started looking at the literature and scoping out what is going on and realized that social work was nowhere to be found or there were little um, pools of kind of conceptual literature around social work and nutrition. Um, we noticed the major professions that are studying food behaviors, mechanisms of change that affect diets and nutrition interventions. And we really realized that there's much um, space for collaboration between all of us and really thinking about how can social work fit into this field as someone who is as a profession who is very prominent in intervention particularly for underserved underrepresented and marginalized populations um, we often work with um, disconnected young adults and youth who are neither working or attend college um, so with access to this population, how can we improve nutrition in this specific um, kind of field? We really started working on our conceptualization and part of choosing our research methods, we really wanted some evidence to support what we were seeing clinically. We wanted something to be able to say, well, where are the social workers? What are the psychosocial constructs that are already utilized in nutrition interventions? Um, what are the challenges? What are the strengths? So we were looking for a project that we could do to give us a stepping stone to more research opportunities. What is the best approach to survey the literature was also a question that we asked a lot. We wanted to understand the current state of science. As we said, we at the beginning didn't know what we don't know. So we really had to get into the literature and identify gaps in the field as well. Um, we also thought about, and I know many of us think about this too, what is a project that we can get working on now without a huge funding mechanism? And we also thought about, well, how can we be accountable scholars? Um, we wanted to do the work, the proper work, to get on the same page with others who have been in this field for longer. Um, we knew we were new coming into this field. Um, and we were thinking, what, how can we do our own scholarly research before we start reaching out to other food behavior scholars and clinicians in various fields? And what we landed on were systematic reviews. So we had a core idea. I mean, we knew we wanted to focus on young adults and nutrition interventions, but everything else was up in the air. Um, and as a starting point, we really scoured the literature for any systematic reviews that were already out there on young adult and nutrition interventions. Um, that's when we started to get kind of familiar with Monica Noor, Roy et al., Deleen's et al.'s um, systematic reviews. I know JNEP had Nicole Kelly's systematic review, um, Lula and Hebden also. Um, so at this point, we were starting to see the gaps in the literature, particularly in relation to young adults and nutrition interventions, which was, what about interventions with psychosocial components, addressing intrapersonal and interpersonal aspects of food behaviors and the systems issues like social and cultural norms and how they also affect um, fruit and vegetable intake. Alongside that, we scoured the databases for methodological literature on how to conduct systematic reviews, which leads us to um, talk about just 
how we were so intentional about the robustness uh, methodologically of this review. I'm just thinking about our positionality and how we were new to the field um, and the fact that we weren't registered dietitians or nutritionists um, or nurses who had the technological um, knowledge about the micronutrients, et cetera. So we knew we had to be robust and grounded in the methodology, and which meant relying on already established methods such as PRISMA, the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Um, the PRISMA checklist was so integral, which I'll talk about in a few slides, um, but we really relied heavily on the PRISMA, um, which also meant prospectively registering our protocol for the review on Prospero. So Prospero um, really is a, is a peer-reviewed protocol registrar actually, so when we submitted our initial methodological protocol, we got some reviews back um, and it really helped us to identify um, things that we needed to keep an extra eye out for, new decision-making arenas that we had to keep an eye out for and make modifications to later on. It really helped us to identify other tools we needed for the review at an early stage so we were prepared, um, such as the risk of bias evaluation tool that we utilized as well as Covidence, the software that we utilize. So um, particularly with Covidence, we were, I was new to it. Um, my second author was new to it. So um, going through some training on how to use Covidence um, was really great to have early on. And also, I think this is the nature of PowerPoint presentations. But while I present this as a linear process, everything up until protocol registration and data collection was an iterative process of re-examination and decision-making. We had to constantly engage with the literature and the search terms because we wanted to cast a good net. It couldn't be too big that we were catching an end of 53 articles or 63 articles at the end of the day, but we also didn't want to have too small of a net where we only had an end of one. We wanted that sweet spot. Um, and to find that sweet spot, we were constantly tweaking our objectives or eligibility criteria, and sometimes even reevaluating our conceptualization and research design. Um, each of these decision-making areas had to align with what we were seeing in the literature before data collection could begin. So we landed on a research design. We specifically decided that we were going to do a systematic review looking at randomized control trials. And again, the PRISMA really helped us. So the PRISMA has each kind of big sections, the introduction, methods, results, discussion, and other information that are required reporting items. But within those, they have also have very specific protocols on how to report on methods how to report on results, et cetera. So provided some examples here of some of the specific items um, that are required in the methods and other information. This is what the Prisma 2020 checklist looks like. Um, I'm sorry for the small text here, but I just wanted to give you an idea of how specific each of the, these items were. And so when we were looking at the literature and starting to conceptualize data collection, the keyword searches, we knew exactly what information we had to save for transparency issues later on, but we also were having an idea of the type of information that had to be collected later on for reporting services, uh, reporting purposes as well. So this just shows the um, title, abstract introduction and methods sections, but the checklist is, is very long. 
So as we were looking at the literature, we landed on four objectives in this iterative process. We identified, we decided to identify the population in the sample, examine the efficacy of the programs, um, operationalize as an increase in FE intake, identify the psychosocial contents of the program, and to identify successes, challenges, and implications. Um, developing the inclusion and exclusion criteria was critical to help both of the reviewers understand exactly what studies we were including. Um, there were two of us that were reviewing constantly. Um, so the population intervention control outcome, we, which we call PICO or PICO, that acronym was really helpful for us to, to always go back to and to understand the type of interventions we were collecting. Um, again, it was a cyclical and iterative process and just want to give a huge shout out to the NYU social work librarian who really helped us with the technicalities of how to find keywords in the databases. So these were the inclusion and exclusion criteria that we implemented. Um, so I won't read every single one of them because you, you see them here. Um, but one of the things that I want to highlight is the fact that we included gray literature to avoid publication bias. Um, we wanted to make sure that all kinds of publications were included. The other thing we want to highlight is the definition of psychosocial. That can feel um, kind of arbitrary, but the way that we define psychosocial was intervention contents that address the psychological, which meant the intra and interpersonal, and or societal aspects of an individual group or community. So we didn't want to just include studies that mentioned psychosocial theories. We wanted to see a description um, in the psychosocial contents of the intervention that really proved that there was some psychosocial constructs that were being addressed. Um, we also included interventions that utilize psychosocial strategies such as group facilitation, personalized feedback, consultation, or any supportive guidance um, to promote change. An exclusion criteria that we did not mention here is the fact that we excluded pharmacological interventions or supplemental therapies and neurophysiological manipulations because we felt like that was not a little different from um, behavioral interventions that address some of these mechanisms of behavior change. So after we were confident with um, the eligibility criteria and our keyword searches, we really started getting into data collection. Um, something we want to highlight here is the fact that library science is truly a science and the keyword searches are unique to each database and is really good practice to save them all for transparency issues. So in our publication, in the supplementary section, you'll notice that um, we posted all of our keyword strategies, um, which I think really adds to the robustness of the methods because part of the systematic review requirements is that it, it is replicable or close to being replicable. Um, our database, we use CINAHL, Embase, Medline, PubMed, Ovid Medline, like Info, and Web of Science. Um, we ended up with an N of 4,113 overall studies that we captured, which then got reduced to an N of 24 through the two reviewers, um, looking at our eligibility criteria, reviewing the PICO, and saying which studies fits our criteria, which studies do not. And we also had methodological consultation throughout with our mentor, Michelle, who has done um, multiple systematic reviews for young adults.
mental health specifically. Um, and here is an example of our search strategy that I wanted to give uh, kind of a snapshot of. Um, the keyword searches are not just keywords that we think of colloquially, but each database has medical subject headings and exploded terms functions that we had to get familiar with to identify the keywords that are unique and specific to each database to be able to capture the um, studies we were looking for. Part of the requirements for a systematic review is a flow diagram. And again, this is kind of standardized across board um, through the PRISMA reporting guidelines. Um, but here is ours. So at each stage of review from identification where we had 4,113 through screening, eligibility, and the final included, we show a trace of what happened to each of the studies, the 4,000 studies that we looked at. Um, and here are the results divided into descriptive and evaluative analysis, which I won't go too detailed into, but wanted to kind of um, highlight a few. So the year ranged from 2006 to 2019. Sample size ranged, um, was there was huge variability. Um, most inter programs use intervention versus active control. Um, and also, I just want to talk a little bit about the dosage. So most used one session to six months for the dosage of the interventions. The follow-ups also varied from two days post-intervention to 15 months. Um, most used servings per day as the unit of analysis. Others dichotomized fruit and vegetable intake. Um, and most used cognitive behavioral theories, such as theory of plant behavior and the trans-theoretical model. And it was really at this point that we decided we were not going to do a meta-analysis because of the heterogeneity um, of the intervention components, particularly the design and design. Um, the countries included US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, major fields, psychology, nutrition, and food sciences. But I just want to acknowledge that there was also public health, communications, and medicine, and no social work. Here are the demographics of the sample. Most use convenience sampling. There was also variation in the baseline at the intake and knowledge. Um, some samples were from particularly students who were interested in health and nutrition, some were not. And the risk of bias based on the evaluation ranged from some to high risk of bias. And there were also some unintended consequences where there was decrease in FE intake from baseline to post-intervention um, in a few of the studies. And really the core methods, the most challenging part of the methods was the synthesis of the results. And I'll show this picture because this is really how we felt about the synthesis. Um, the descriptive and evaluative part took some time, but it was easier compared to the synthesis. Uh, the synthesis really felt like a maze. You know, all of these studies had commonalities based on our eligibility criteria, but they were so vastly different. Um, and we were really trying to think, what is a meaningful synthesis? How can we bring all of this information together in a meaningful way? You know, what are some of the themes? What would be useful for the field to know other than these descriptives? And what we really leaned on um, is influenced by some qualitative research, just this notion of a thematic analysis, 
which landed us to do a typological analysis where we categorized the studies based on their characteristics. So the studies were really grouped by um, the significance of the outcome first, and we didn't see any real pattern. And then we started looking at the theoretical framework. Um, and this is when we started to really see something um, because it led us to look at delivery methods and the specific components. And we really saw that the theory, of course, guided the intervention um, content, but the intervention strategies, the actual strategies and the delivery methods were not specific or unique to each theory because intervention strategies and delivery methods can be applied across theories. So we had um, different theoretical frameworks that were influencing the study, but then they may all use the what if, um, what if planning, what when where planning or goal setting. Um, so there, we started to see some patterns in the specific delivery methods and the components. Um, there's less variation in the intervention content and delivery once the theory is applied. Um, so examining the different levels of organization by distinct categories really helped us see some of the patterns. I think one of the unique findings of the systematic review is the typology. So we were able to group them into four basic categories, which was anticipatory. Any interventions that helped a young adult anticipate future food decision-making points by including planning or goal-setting activities. Um, socially engaged interventions that had some sort of interactive element, addressing social norms, cultural norms, um, developmental norms, particular to young adulthood, and then providing some sort of direct contact. Um, and then a hybrid model that combined anticipatory strategies and socially engaged strategies. And then we had exposure-based, which was exposing um, young adults to messages through texts um, and emails. Some were personalized feedback, but may have been automated personalized feedback. Um, so, it was a form of messaging that exposed the young adults to information. Um, something to highlight here is that we found a lot of significant changes, positive changes in, in fruit and vegetable intake across these types. Um, so it wasn't that one type is better than the other. You know, this is just one way of thinking about um, these different interventions which leads me to really think about the implications. And I'll kind of start at the bottom here. Um, the need for more social workers in the field, I know was a big thing for us, but one of the things that the typology made us think about is how different professions that are all looking at nutrition interventions may be familiar with different um, theories. So not all theories translate across fields, but, um, categorizing interventions in this way based on intervention content um, might help the communication between collaborative teams um, because that, that may be easier to conceptualize and communicate with each other um, in interdisciplinary settings. So that's one of the major implications that we feel um, this review contributed. Um, but the other implementation kind of implications um, have to do with methods too. Just the need for diverse sampling strategies to include some of the more disconnected young adults that um, we see in our work, acknowledged in addressing systematic barriers that contribute to dietary disparities, such as cost differentials, accessibility um, issues. 
and to mitigate and understand the unintended consequences. Um, there were some hypotheses around that, but just more systematic research that examines these unintended consequences might be necessary. Um, theory is important. It's just one other way of thinking about interventions might be through this typology based on intervention content. And really what we're interested in furthering too is just testing these behavioral mechanisms identified in typology, which may reveal novel moderating and mediating pathways that help us to understand behavior change a little bit more. Um, and then this is related to policy, but hopefully just a more recognition of young adulthood as a unique developmental phase. Um, young adults tend to be lumped into a broader category of just adults in general. Sometimes you'll see like an age group of 18 to 65, um, but we just really hope that there is a little bit more um, acknowledgement of the unique developmental factors that may specifically affect individuals who are between 18 to 35 years of age. So thinking about um, our methods, you know, one of the prompts for this presentation was thinking about strengths and limitations. Um, I think one of the strengths is that this can be a very low cost project. Um, at the same time, it really depends on the type of programs and resources that are available. So it could also be high cost, um, but it really was a great learning opportunity. I know my mentor utilizes it as a teaching opportunity too, um, in regards to thinking through intervention research, um, because part of completing a systematic review is really understanding these um, biases within intervention research as well. So just a great learning opportunity. Um, I think there are huge implications for the field, especially when we're able to do systematic reviews to particularly for social work. It just um, gives us a, a way to place ourselves in meaningful ways in this new kind of um, collaborative ways or in this new um, in intervention research, particularly related to nutrition. It doesn't require a big team. And it, I think the systematic review often also leads to other research opportunities. Um, so there are many moving parts though. Again, it's based on accessibility. It can be very complex. Um, I would recommend keeping it within small teams and it can also be very time consuming. Um, I will say as a doc student, this was conceptualized in 2018 and I think the publication came out in, let's see, I think it was 2021. So it did, it did take quite a bit of time. It doesn't have to. Um, one of the systematic reviews I'm on right now, it only took about a year from conceptualization to being in review right now. Um, I won't read through every single one of these points for lessons learned, but I will say that choosing a topic that the team or at least the lead author is genuinely invested and interested in is extremely important, um, especially because it can be very time consuming. Um, so it, you know, it doesn't, you don't want it to be a topic that you're peripherally interested in. It has to be something that you're invested in because you'll be spending a lot of time with it. Um, communication and collaboration. Um, acknowledging your own biases is definitely important, particularly in reconciling what studies should be included and shouldn't be. And I will say, while replicability is a major factor in, in systematic reviews, it, there are some flaws in that um, because the, first of all, the keyword strategies, the key keyword search strategies are changing all the time. Um, so 
it, you cannot replicate it 100%. You just cannot. Um, and also just the fact that literature, uh, you know, the literature is growing all the time as well. So one of the lessons that we learned is we have to set an end date of when we will finish the keywords because you can keep updating that search um, indefinitely. But it is important to update the systematic review. So perhaps we will update this one that we did maybe in, in five years or something like that. And um, the methods applied really depend on where the field is. So we decided to do a systematic review, but that may not be appropriate for newer fields that don't have randomized controlled trials. You might do a scoping review, which is a different type of review. Um, so it, it just really depends on where the field is at. So with that, um, I would like to open it to dialogue, comments, feedback, and questions. Thank you again so much for having me here. It is such an honor to be able to present to you all. Um, my name is Rachel Mizu. Please take down my email um, if you would ever like to collaborate on anything or just talk through anything. Um, I'm always here. One of my favorite quotes is by Helen Keller. She says, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. And I, I really do think that is true in the world of research. So thank you so much. Um, I'll open it up to discussion or questions. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Shimizu. I know I learned a lot listening to your presentation. So one question we had from someone, and so you, as you have questions, you can put those into the question um, area in GoToWebinar. Um, so the first question just says, thank you so much for your detailed breakdown of the methods that you used in your systematic review. Um, is there a reason you did not collaborate with the nutrition professional for this project? Yeah, so one of the practical issues was the fact that I really wanted to get my doctorate done. This, The way that we did this um, was the first part of it was the qualifying exam in the doctorate program required everybody to do a systematic review. That regulation has changed since, so that is no longer the case at our school. But when I was there, that was the requirement, and it was within a specific time frame. And to reach out to dietitians at NYU and to kind of start a relationship building, just it wasn't within that um, time availability. Um, I will say, though, I think in the future, like now that I'm here as an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Anchorage, I've started relationship building with the dietetics department and we've done a lot more collaborating. So I think that's definitely something that we would do for the update. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. Um, you mentioned working with a librarian. Can you talk a little bit about what that process looks like and how that helped in the process? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Stephen was so amazing. And the fact that the librarians are constantly updating themselves on the keyword search strategy technology was so helpful um, because the exploded terms, it's, it kind of reminds me of computer science um, because it's cataloged in such unique ways that is different by each database. And so it's almost like learning a third or fourth language. And you know, we didn't have that knowledge. Um, and so just sitting down with Steven to say, okay, well, how we do it, how do we do this for this specific database was helpful, one. But two, when managing 4,000 some studies, um, he was also very integral in helping us with data management once we started the data collection. Um, and the way we did it was just emailing him, reaching out, setting an appointment, um, and telling him that we wanted to do a systematic review, and he knew exactly 
um, what to, what we were looking for. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, if someone was getting ready to start on a systematic review for the first time, what would you tell them you wish you had known? Mm, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think this is something that, not that I wish that I would have known, but something that, um, okay, two things. First is that the synthesis of the data is probably the hardest part. So allow yourself the most amount of time to really meaningfully think about how to synthesize that data um, because it's not just a summary, right? Um, it's really synthesizing. So that, and two, just really surrounding yourself with teammates that are collaborative that you can communicate openly with. Um, you know, Aaron wasn't someone that would just take my ideas of an inclusion exclusion criteria and say, okay, but really help me critically think about the types of inclusion and exclusion criteria and other aspects of the review. Um, so I think having a good collaborator, particularly as your second author, um, is really important. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your experience with systematic reviews and giving us a good rundown on how to go through that methodology today um, and just for your time and expertise. So at this point, I can pass it back to Mark. All right, Kristen, thank you very much. And thank you again, Ray, for your presentation today. I would really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. I just wanted to do a couple quick reminders before I close today's session. Um, please complete the survey you receive when we close out. Your feedback is greatly appreciated for our future programming. I'll be on the lookout for an email with today's recording, the handout, and your CEU certificate. And always remember, if you enjoyed today's webinar, be sure to check out our upcoming webinars on the events section of our website. So that concludes today's session. I want to thank everyone for joining us today, and everyone have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you.